Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were at their boat in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. What does it actually mean? Not only for these presumably young men, but for us, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It's something we hear a lot. And if you've been in church for a long time, as I think most of us have, I certainly have heard this over and over in my life, that I'm called to be a disciple. Well, obviously a disciple is someone who follows a teacher. That's one dictionary definition of a student of a teacher or a, a follower of a master. One who tries to emulate the teacher or the, the master or the mistress. One who tries to practice and perpetuate the work of that person. That's the kind of standard definition. Think of, if you thought for a moment that you would become a disciple of, say, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, you would obviously read as much of his work as you could. You can't literally follow him. He died in 1961 or something around there. So he's not alive. But you can read his work and you can read other people who've written about his work. He's come and gone in fashion, Carl Jung. And at the moment uh, there's a lot of, uh, of Jungian thinking uh, embedded in, all other, uh, in a lot of other literature, in, in, in novels and in psychoanalysis and in uh, all kinds of things. And you might even learn from students of his, there'd be some of those still around. So we kind of get that sense, but is being a disciple of Jesus different to that? Because we want to not only follow the teaching that we have of Jesus, but in some sense to follow him as a person. But how do we do that if Jesus isn't here? Well, Paul's letters are the best clue we've got as to a way forward, because Paul is like us. He is a disciple of Jesus who never met Jesus. He says he, he talks about himself as one who was untimely born. Um, he comes much later and missed out on all that. In fact, he, was, he began his life, if we can believe the book of Acts, uh, on the opposite side, persecuting those people who did say they were disciples of Jesus. 
and his writings are the first that we have in the New Testament. They're a decade or so before the Gospel of Mark, which is the Gospel we've been reading today and is the Gospel set for this year. So we'll get more readings from Mark than we will from the other Gospels. And Mark, uh, most people agree, was the earliest Gospel, um, maybe 50 years or 70 years after the, the life of Jesus. But what we're reading in Paul is letters. And they're not written to us, so we're reading, we've sort of steamed open the envelopes and we're reading other people's mail. We don't know the whole of the correspondence. But we do know that a couple of really interesting things. First is, Paul tells us almost nothing about the life of Jesus. If we only had the letters of Paul in the New Testament and not the Gospels, we would know almost nothing about the person called Jesus who lived. Paul uses the word Christ, which uh, is the Greek word, or Greek translation of the Jewish word, the Hebrew word Messiah. He uses that almost twice as much, perhaps a little more than twice as much, as he uses the name Jesus. The Gospels, on the other hand, hardly ever use the word Christ or Messiah at all. Paul uses it all the time. And we've often, because we often say the word Jesus Christ together, it's often sort of assumed, maybe if you're a kid, that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his, and Mr. Christ. Uh, if you met him, you know, and you were a good child, you wouldn't, uh, in, like we used to do, we used to address older people by their... Uh, but that's not true at all. It doesn't mean that at all. It's not a first and last name situation. Messiah, Christ, means chosen one, anointed one, the one who is um, picked out by the divine for some purpose. But, Christ, but what Paul uses the word Christ to mean seem to mean something deeper. It's the most important word he uses. This is what he said in Corinthians, trying to explain to this group of people in the city of Corinth, who he may have visited but we don't know, um, and he may go back there. He seems to he's very keen to be able to do that. We don't know whether he does. Look, I hand it on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day also in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. What does it mean that Jesus appeared to him? Or, as he says, Christ appeared to him, not Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Well, we know, if we read the book of Acts, that Paul had this blinding light experience. He fell off his horse, heard this sound of somebody speaking to him that he took to be God, and he, he was blinded by this light. It was a deep, mystical experience something that he found difficulty talking about. In fact, he was blind until uh, some time later and wasn't able to communicate really well at all. For Paul, it seems, Jesus was the man who lived, who he wasn't that interested in because we don't know much about him from Paul's writing. And that Christ was the kind of the new being of who Jesus became in what we call the resurrection. Now, Scholars have talked about this as the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. You may have read that. It comes from the late 19th century. The Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Not that they're two separate entities, but that the Jesus of history is history. 
just like Carl Jung, is history. And we can only access that history through the, the text that we've got and through the tradition that we've received down into the church. But Paul is saying we can actually have an, an immediate, unmediated experience of God for ourselves. And it will be mystical and it will be different for each of us and it will be, in, it, it will be inexplicable. It, it won't be easy to explain it. And as you sort of explain it, it won't make a lot of sense. And we all know this because we all have had experiences of great meaning and joy where we've found a friend or we've fallen in love or we've had an experience with a pet or we've had an experience of a sunset. All of these things, no, no one is sort of greater than the other, but none of them are really very explainable. I met this woman and I don't know, she just looked at me different to the other women and we started talking and, you know, I could put all that in words. It doesn't sound very interesting at all. It doesn't sound like it's worth anything at all. But I know in my experience it's worth a tremendous amount and it's changed my life. And I can say that about many people that I've met and loved, many friends, as, a, as could you. We can't put it into words. But there's this possibility of this real unmediated experience and it doesn't help when we say are you a disciple of Jesus or you should follow Jesus it doesn't help if we don't unpack that because I don't know what that means I, Jesus isn't here I can't follow him we need to be clearer we need to try and see if we can um, be more open about what is our experience because many of us know that our children and our grandchildren and the people that we love in our families haven't managed to take what we have experienced and experience it for themselves. It hasn't become for them a real and intimate thing. And that's our fault, not us as individuals necessarily, but us as a church. We've not managed to find ways of translating the Jesus of history into an experience that you can have moment by moment that actually animates and changes and grows your life. Even though, for many of us, that has been our experience. I think there's two things we can drag out of this text. I know I've gone a long way around to get back to this. There's two things we can take out of this text. And they're two really interesting things. One is, Jesus says, come and fish with me and I'll... Come and follow me and I'll get you fishing for people. They're fishermen. It's as if Jesus is saying, who you are, and unfortunately for many of us, our job is our identity. And maybe it was the same in the first century. In fact, more so because um, you didn't... Uh, my, uh, my uncle, who's now uh, dead, was died in his late 90s, he said it never occurred to him to think about what job he would do. His dad was on the railways. Full stop. End of paragraph, end of sentence, everything. That, but you just did that. It never occurred to him that he could think, oh, I wonder if I want to be a carpenter or a plumber or an astronaut. His dad was on the railways. He was on the railways. His grandfather had been on the railways. It's in a sense, in maybe in the first century more so, essential to who you are. So in one sense, Jesus is saying, who you already are, the deep sense of who you are as a human being, I'm going to take that. I'm not going to 
do damage to it. I'm not going to do violence to it. I'm not going to change it. I'm just inviting you to broaden it out. Now, if you want to eat, you're probably still going to need to fish for fish. So I'm not saying stop that. I'm saying, look, this is bigger. This kind of entity of who you are is much, much bigger than just fish. And then there's this other thing. Why does Jesus call two sets of brothers? Is it just lucky? Is it uh, a socioeconomic thing, which might likely have been uh, life in Galilee at this time, and we'll talk about this through the year because we're dealing a lot with Mark, was in tremendous turmoil. The 1% was getting richer and the rest were getting poorer, uh, and the archaeological evidence is constantly showing us this. So it may well have been that uh, two brothers... Um, were working in, in, the, in a fishing industry when there wasn't really room for two anyway and it was really conflicting. So there's all kinds of reasons. But why two sets of brothers? Well, of course, in literature we know the answer to that because in literature there's always two siblings. There's a good one and a bad one, isn't there? Think of all the movies we've watched. The Godfather. The King's Speech. Remember the King's Speech? The two possible kings. The good one who stuttered, and the feckless one who gave it all up. The Lion King, two brothers. We know this story. And East of Eden, you know that great John Steinbeck book? That's built on the same, so the two, good, the good brother and the bad brother, which of course is built right on the very first piece of literature we know in this area, Cain and Abel, followed by Joseph and Esau. We know this story. Dostoevsky's, the, the brothers Kalamazov, well, there's three of them, but Dostoevsky, he liked to make things more complicated anyway. But the point being that we know what, what it means when we see two siblings. We know that it means that, that it's us, the good and bad of us, the split of us, the, the bit of us that can makes us sense that we're not actually as whole as we'd like to be. We're not actually as contained and as, as, as holistic as we want to be. Maybe what Jesus is doing in calling two sets of brothers or the Gospel of Mark is telling us in writing about two sets of brothers is this, is this discipleship, whatever it looks like, is going to be holistic. It's going to be inviting. It's going to be a healing. It's going to be a recreating of what it fully means to be you and what it fully means for me to be me and then for us to be fully in community together. And imagine if that were true what our conversations around Australia Day might look like. The fraught conversations that we're currently having about whether we should celebrate or whether we should mourn or whether we should do both or whether we should do it on this day or on another day. How should we listen to the people who have been disenfranchised in our community in this situation? And how should we invite them into the, the wide brown land that Broman and Nick sang? If it was true that discipleship is not the narrow following, I'm a Jungian, so I follow Carl Jung and all that other stuff. Did Jung say that? If he didn't say it, I, I don't, I'm not. It's not that kind of discipleship. It's a big opening up of what it means for to be truly, fully human. The integrating of the good and the bad, the good brother and the bad brother, the, the feckless sister and the wonderful sister that is actually all of us all the time. It's a reconnecting, a healing, a restoration. At least in part. At least in part. 